This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today you're going to meet Lillian Joyce, who's a grinder operator at a Pilbara lithium mine. And you'll also find out why more and more women are working in the mining industry. You'll also find out about a new Ladies in Livestock group that gives novice farmers a chance to learn handling skills from an experienced female farmer. The idea was for women to come out in an environment that wasn't under pressure, um, which sometimes it is with men. They get, they're in a hurry to do things and, and often they lose their cool with their wives and their girlfriends. <laughs> so this was to provide an environment where they could relax and learn. More about the Ladies in Livestock group. After news headlines and across to the Bureau, just after half past 12 today, six past 12 here on the Country Hour. The chair of the panel working on the best way to transition out of the live sheep trade by sea says one of the biggest sticking points is landing on the best time frame to end the trade. Animal activists and welfare groups want the federal government's policy to be enacted ASAP, but industry thinks it could take as long as 20 years to transition. The panel originally had until the end of September to submit its report to the Federal Agriculture Minister, but was granted an extension and now has until the 25th of October. Philip Glyde is the chair of the Live Sheep Phase Out panel. Philip, what's the hold-up? Well, just getting it all together, we had so many public meetings and so many survey responses and submissions. It's taken us a while to make sure that we've actually got through all those and understood where people are coming from. And then we've got to turn that into a report that provides the evidence for the conclusions that we'll come to and the recommendations we make. And we um, had thought we'd be able to do that, but uh, it's taken us a little longer and uh, the Minister's given us an extra three weeks to... Uh, four weeks to to make sure that we get it right. And um, I, I think from my perspective, I'd rather have it right than exactly in on time, even though it is important for all of the players that are engaged in this debate to be aware of what the outcome is. Are you confident that you can make that October 25th yeah, deadline? Yeah, very confident. Yeah, very confident. Now, I imagine one of the biggest sticking points is the time frame for Correct. the phase-out. So you've got the four-member panel. One of them is Heather Neal. She's the former CEO of the RSPCA. You've also got a WA farmer on the panel, Sue Middleton. And, you know, she's got that farming background, understands, you know, practically what it would take to transition out of this trade. And just going on the industry and animal welfare groups' submissions input to the panel, I'm I'm thinking Heather's probably angling for a quick transition, sort of a three-years tops transition, while Sue's probably more in the... Uh, you know, like a 10-year time frame. How, how accurate is that as, you know, one of the, the key sticking points for the panel? Well, it's certainly a key sticking point, but it's one thing for the members of the panel to have their own opinions. I think we'd like to make sure that we're, or demonstrate that we've been driven by the evidence of what, you know, how long does it take to transition? What are the time frames, for example, uh, standing up extra processing 
capability, and that's not just capital works, it's, it's getting labour, it's accommodation and things like that. How long does it take to start to move your flock towards breeds that are going to be more likely able to find a home in the meat processing end of the sector rather than the live sheep end of the, the sector? So we're drawing on all of that information uh, to try and make that uh, really difficult choice between enough time to adjust but also um, short enough time that people... Uh, aware that it's a, that there's a phase-out. The whole idea was there's to be a phase-out and we're meant to advise on the best way to make sure that phase-out happens. So we'd, it's one of our... and certainly has a, a been a, a point of contention and you've summarised the different views in the stakeholder group pretty well. That's all we're trying, we're trying to do is, find, is, is look at what the arguments are on both sides to try and come up with something that's going to be reasonable. But, you know, and going on what you've just said, even someone from the outside looking in with no, you know, access to the reports and the submissions, et cetera, that you, you've, you've had to look at. Yeah. I, I mean, that's going to be lo- a longer time frame, isn't it? I mean, just look around. We've got staffing issues. We've got accommodation issues. Uh, even the people that, that live in Western Australia, for example, can't find housing in the city yeah. or the regional areas, let alone bringing in new staff housing them to work in, say, you know, abattoirs, you know, looking at the possibility yeah. of finding new meat markets and, and finding the staff themselves and the transition to, for your flock, you know, looking exactly. at that transition process. So, I mean, you know, as a, as a, a guessing, <laughs> as an estimate, it's, it's looking more, more like a longer time frame, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I'm not going to be drawn on where we've landed with that, but you're right, they're the factors that go into the mix. And if you think about... The WA economy, certainly the research that we had commissioned demonstrates that unemployment levels are very low in the sheep producing regions, are very hard to get uh, tradies in to build anything, let alone put in place uh, you know, new cold storage equipment or anything like that, or indeed new housing for new workers. So there are a lot of factors that come into that decision. And I think one of the things I'd observed, though, is that over the last 10 or 15 years, the very same adjustments have been going on as the numbers of animals going on the boats have declined over that period. And so adjustment is occurring. And if adjustment occurs over a reasonable time period, then that has less of an impact. If you do a sudden overnight adjustment, then that that does cause a lot of angst. But I think the other thing I'd mention too is that certainty has been a pretty important factor in both sides of the debate that we've, the stakeholders in the debate that we've heard from is that having a bit of certainty about a date is desirable. Even the producers want to know what the date will be so they can then plan. And they've been doing, farmers are very resilient and they're very creative business people. They they run a very complex business and um, they need that certainty. And I'm hoping that what when we come out with the report and uh, depending on how the government reacts to it, that we'll be providing at least some certainty, even if people don't like the fact that the the government's going ahead with the proposal, uh, they'll at least have the certainty to plan. And we think that's the critical thing is to begin to plan as soon as possible for whatever the, the time frame will be for the phase-out. Uh, one of the other um, challenges, I guess, is for the abattoirs. We've got Shark Lake Abattoir near... Esperance that recently shut its doors, it's going to review and assess the situation. But surely, I mean, you can conclude from that the economics didn't weigh up with it closing its doors for now anyway. How does the panel assess that? Well, we actually spoke with Minerva yesterday to find out what their plans are for their facilities and they've said to us that they've, as they've said in their media releases, that it's a shutdown period, it's not a closed-down period. They're 
preparing to make some further capital investments. They've already invested significantly in both the Sharkland plant and the Tamman plant. But again, that's one of the, the issues um, with the uncertainty swirling around with the sort of concerns that have come around with the announcement of this policy. That makes it a difficult investment climate for the processes as well. And again, we think that the sooner the government come out with a date as to when the phase-out might be and what assistance it might provide to transit the industry from where it is now to that future without LiveX, the, the better it will be. People can make those plans and adjust accordingly. This is The Country Hour on the ABC WA and on the ABC Listen app, 13 past 12. Philip Glyde is the chair of the Live Sheep Phase-Out panel. He's here today and he and the panel now have until October 25 to submit their report to the Federal Agriculture Minister. Philip, there's been a lot of commentary about the impact this policy to phase out the trade is having on industry confidence levels and also on sheep prices. The Premier, Roger Cook, and the State and Federal Agriculture Ministers are united just saying that the policy has nothing to do with the confidence levels and the current state of the prices, saying it's just market forces and more about uh, supply and demand than the policy. What's your opinion? Well, as a former head of the Australian Bureau of Agricultural um, and Resource Economics, I can say it is a matter of supply and demand. Um, Basically, the price for sheep um, meat uh, is set internationally. Most of the the sheep that go to slaughter in WA end up overseas, and so that's the dominant feature in setting price. And right at the moment, it's a question of supply and demand. Um, there's, um, uh, the demand overseas is still recovering from the, the post-COVID economic slowdowns, and so uh, it's beginning to come back. But also with a couple of good seasons in recent years, both on the East Coast and also on the West Coast, um, farmers have increased the flock. The flock's quite large now. And this is the same on the East and the West Coast, whether it's beef or cattle. Uh, sorry, uh, sheep or cattle. And... Um, with that oversupply, uh, then prices are low. And um, I think what uh, is happening, though, is that the policy announcement has come out at the time when we're going through those normal commodity price cycles, and it's at a low point. And I think farmers are fearful that if the transition to the new arrangement without LiveX isn't handled properly, then they will be seeing this sort of circumstance occur in the future whenever the, the date is set for live sheep phase-out. And so I think it's... Certainly, the price, the price, the current prices are set, you know, by market forces. Um, but it's the we certainly heard a lot about from the farmers about their fears that this might happen in the future when LiveX ends. And as I think um, the premier and the minister have pointed out, I think in the past uh, the, this policy hasn't come into effect as yet. It's uh, going to be um, no earlier than the next parliament. Uh, the, the government has to be re-elected um, for this policy to go ahead. And so I think there's a lot of nervousness about the policy and a lot of angst about the way market forces are working at the moment. But don't markets operate on expectations? So they with do. a policy like that just out there, uh, no date at this stage. I mean, people, markets start acting on the, that information. Yeah. It creates uncertainty for the industry and the report the report you're working on is delayed so we have another month of that so doesn't that all feed into what is happening with confidence levels and prices and and does have an effect i think that it, it would be a factor but I, my argument would be that it's a relatively small factor that the 
reason for the oversupply is it relates to a lot of decisions that have been taken in the last few years. So, for example, I think WA uh, sheep producers had a bit of a honeymoon period because they did have the good uh, good seasons and also the recovery in the east coast from the drought has led to a fair, fair lot of sheep going east for restocking purposes. And so they've had a particularly good season. I think it's, though, it's more those... Certainly there's short-term expectations and prices. People have to make decisions now about joining animals and, and what have you. And what we're talking about, I think, what the policy is about is the longer run. Sure, that will have an influence in the, in the longer run and will influence decisions now, but the vast majority of the movement in prices and the fluctuations in supply and demand and thus prices has come from those fundamentals, those market fundamentals. And if it was a particular issue for live X and you'd see an even greater differential between the, the East Coast price for sheep meat as well as the West Coast and that's not the case and you'd also, if it was just about sheep, you wouldn't see low prices for cattle. So there's a lot more going on than just the government's policy announcement. Philip, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Thanks, Belinda. Philip Glide, he's chair of the Live Sheep Phase Out panel. The panel now has until October the 25th to submit its report to the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. 18 past 12, and after listening to that, curious to get your thoughts on where the panel's up to and the major sticking point, of course, working out that time frame for the phase-out. 0448 18 past 12. Well, the confidence levels in the sheep trade and the sheep prices were also a hot topic of conversation on today's morning show. Here's some of the texts and calls that came through to Nadia Mitsopoulos. Alan says the WA sheep farmer is off the mark. Similar price drop happened years ago while the live trade was still active. It is market forces and farmers offloading stock due to expected extended dry summers. Well, Gus is in Darken. How are you, Gus? Tell me about your circumstances. Yeah, we're in the same predicament. We've had sheep for generations and, um, yeah, we could see the writing on the wall once the live export fiasco came along. So, yeah, we made a decision earlier this year to um, sell the lot. You could just see that, um, you know, once the word was out there that the, the market was winding down, they're not going to um, they're not going to spend in the live export trade and it was going to continue to decline. So um, those extra sheep were going to hit the local market, which, of course, is then going to create a bigger oversupply. So what have you done? Have you sold your whole flock, have you? Yeah, we've sold the whole lot. Yep, we're out of it. That's it? You're done? You're no longer sheep farming? No, we've cropped the entire thing now. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it was a bit heartbreaking chasing the last lot onto the truck, you know, particularly stuff that you've bred for generations. And, um, yeah, you know, we had some really nice sheep cutting, you know, magnificent wool and what have you, but um, it just comes down to dollars and cents. This was your family business, I suspect. A generation of farmers, was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm a second-generation farmer and, um, yeah, it was sort of run sheep from day dot. So, um, yeah, no, it's pretty hard to get out. But uh, when it comes to the, you know, the final crunch, we were sort of getting $160 for weathers and then it turned down to $140 of weathers. And I think we got out at, uh, luckily, early in the year for about 90 and, yeah, I believe they're down to about 30 or 40 now. 
Gus from Darkin, one of the talkback callers to Nadia Mitsopoulos' morning show earlier today. 20 past 12 on the text. Uh, this, I'm a sheep producer in the eastern wheat belt. We grow large frame merinos that aren't suited to a local fat lamb market. I have 800 merino weather lambs that I usually sell in August to a restocking feedlot to grow out for live export. I can't sell them. No one will buy them because of the risk of the live export ban. I have previously diversified into other breeds of sheep, but nothing stacks up like a merino. We plan years ahead in our livestock business to improve our viability and welfare of our livestock. We're being forced to change our livelihood that we love. There is no longer a market for my weather lambs due to the uncertainty in the live export ban. I can't keep the extra lambs over summer. I'll have to make a hard decision on their future. This from Robin Busso. Has the panel and animal activists considered all the other businesses this ban will affect, like the small rural town businesses, transport businesses, shearing teams, hay producers, just to name a few? And this from Craig in Albany. In all fairness to all live exports, if we shut down the live export of sheep, what are we going to do with goats, cattle and even rock lobster? The text is 0448 922 24 21 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Checking in with the newsroom shortly, around about half past 12. First, though, an independent policy institute wants a $100 billion of government money to be invested into developing green manufacturing in Australia, including green refined iron production. The call comes from the Centre for Policy Development and Program Director Toby Phillips says using green energy to produce things like iron, aluminium and ammonia here in Australia makes economic and environmental sense. The biggest impact by far that Australia has on global emissions is through the offshore processing of our exports. So through exporting things like uh, fossil fuels and also through exporting iron ore, which is then processed using fossil fuels, the emissions associated with those commodities that we export is almost five times our domestic emissions. So if we can even take a slice of that and process it onshore using renewable energy, then that will have a bigger impact on reducing global emissions than anything we can do domestically. And so, you know, I mentioned all of our exports is about five times our domestic emissions. Just iron ore alone is close to two times our domestic emissions, just from the offshore processing of iron ore. So this is really a win-win scenario. If we bring even a fraction, you know, in the report, I was saying about an eighth of that iron ore, if we process that onshore, um, that's, that's equivalent to our current emissions reduction target. So if we can keep just one eighth who knows, maybe one quarter of our iron ore onshore in Australia, turn it into iron ore steel here. And then there's still a global market for that crude iron or that processed steel. So the win-win is that we get the domestic industry that's going to be globally competitive, producing things that people want to buy. That's the future of of Australian prosperity. And the second win uh, is that we've removed a huge amount of emissions intensive activity uh, that's going on around the world. Are Australian producers going to be able to process iron ore at a rate that's economically viable, that they'll be able to find customers? So, look, there's two barriers to producing green iron 
in Australia at the moment. And this is actually the reason that the government needs to, to get involved. In the report, I, I step through kind of three criteria for assessing whether it's worth the government getting involved with public money. And one of those criteria is, are there short-term barriers? And there's two barriers to doing green iron at the moment. So one of those barriers is technological. Um, we don't have fully mature technologies yet for processing iron ore into green iron at scale. And in particular, the best bets that are emerging globally in terms of the technology don't work really well with Australian iron ore. So fundamentally, there's this technology barrier and until that gets resolved, the costs will be higher. So we do need investment in, in solving that and in just starting to deploy some of those high cost technologies so we can learn, you know, you only learn by doing. The other barrier to competitiveness is what I refer to as the grey discount. So, you know, you've got your green technology, you've got your grey technology, and the fossil fuel intensive um, production of iron, it gets a discount both through fossil fuel subsidies around the world, and it gets a discount because the cost of the emissions is not priced in. So it has a big, uh, there's a big cost to the global society, that's not priced in when it's traded. So over the next 20 years, as the world moves more and more towards decarbonisation, we can be pretty sure that that grey discount is going to go away. We've already seen the EU introduce a carbon border tariff that will take away the grey discount for products going into the EU. That's going to happen more and more. And over the next 20 years, I think we can also be confident that there will be technological progress. And so over the long term, those barriers are probably going to be resolved and they can be resolved faster with government action. And certainly we need the government to step in today to help the industry overcome those short-term barriers. Program Director at the Centre for Policy Development, Toby Phillips, speaking to Lucinda Jose about the Green Gold Report that's just been released. 26 past 12. Sam Elsom is an entrepreneur fighting climate change, one cow at a time. From his state-of-the-art facility in Tasmania, he and his team are growing a special red seaweed and turning it into a methane-busting cattle feed. And with more than 24 million head of cattle in Australia, Sam believes it could make a huge difference. But at the moment, he has one and a half million doses of seaweed supplement, which will soon expire unless he can get some government and industry support. Morning, guys. Hey, Rodney. How are you? Yeah. Hey, Mark. How are you, mate? Yeah, mate. Yeah, see you. The last five years have been life-changing for me and my family. You know, everything's happened so fast that sometimes I have to pinch myself. Well, we're lucky, eh? We have this awesome weather. Yeah, that's right. It's been a huge career leap. You know, I've had to sort of learn to be comfortable and also overcome that sort of imposter syndrome, I think, that a lot of people might experience when they're new to a space. Sam stepped away from a very successful career in the fashion world, mixing with some of the most glamorous and beautiful people in the world to take on a huge new challenge. We have this global crisis in climate change and we have to act. So this is the seaweed we grow, the red asparagopsis. Kind of amazing that it has these methane-busting properties. Sam saw that there was the science out there and no one was doing it. 
He felt so compelled to do something for his children and for his children's children. What if I just sit here and wait for somebody else to do it? Maybe they won't. We are the next wave, I think, of climate action. So we have an, a sense of urgency. The window is closing. I could never imagine Sam doing some of the things that he's doing. The forums that he has to talk to, the scale and in the sectors that he's talking. What you seem to be saying is that the science is established, this stuff works, but you're currently just stuck in this bureaucratic limbo. That's correct. Sam has come a long way very fast, but he still has to shift a lot of mindsets and get people behind him to make this work. The risks that he's taken have been pretty significant, but I heard a lovely quote the other day, it's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world who do, and I think Sam's one of those people. He's at the bleeding edge of this, there's no doubt about it. And you can watch Sam Elsom's Australian Story. It's tonight, 8 o'clock, on ABC TV and then afterwards on ABC iView. 29 past 12, and let's get an update from the newsroom. Jonathan Beale is here. Hello. Hello, Belinda. WA's Chamber of Commerce and Industry says businesses are in a good position, but operating costs are hurting. The Chamber's quarterly report found three in ten businesses believe conditions will improve in the next three months. But the CCI says confidence has come down from its highs of 2021, with rising wages, insurance costs and government fees and charges all having an impact. The Reserve Bank will meet tomorrow to decide whether to adjust interest rates, but some economists say another increase is more likely next month. Tomorrow's meeting of the RBA board will be the first under new Governor Michelle Bullock. After 12 increases in close succession, the central bank has left rates at 4.1% for the past three months. And greyhound advocacy group Free the Hounds says it's not surprised by the deaths of three dogs at race events over the weekend. Two greyhounds died in one race on Friday night, while another died the next day. There have been 10 deaths at Cannington this year and three at Northam. Free the Hounds says ultimately there's no such thing as a safe race. Morning is Blinder at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. It is 29 to 1. Still to come, we'll head off to Muche just before the news at 1 for a look at the yarding and the prices at the cattle market today. Also taking a look at women in mining and you'll meet one of the young bull riders from Western Australia that's heading overseas for a big competition. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Joey Rawson with you this afternoon. Joey, how is it looking around the southwest Land Division this afternoon and for the rest of the week? What can you see? Yeah, Belinda, we have had quite a strong cold front move over the southwest of the state um, during the last sort of 12 to 24 hours. Um, that's produced a fair bit of wind, especially along the south coast and and right now that front is kind of moving into the Eucla, but behind that front we have um, quite cold air, so there's uh, quite a fair few showers and, and the odd thunderstorm along the south coast. And, and there's a bit of wind also with those showers, so uh, the wind's getting up to you know, around sort of that 90-kilometre mark. But we should start seeing an easing trend uh, during the afternoon into tomorrow. Um, also, I'd like to highlight there's the chance of some small hail, uh, especially on the south coast with that weather event. Um, as we move into tomorrow, most of the shower activity is going to contract 
further east along the south coast. So um, along the Esperance coast, we're looking at about five to 10 millimetres and uh, but more towards the southwest coast, um, it's around that one millimetre mark. So, um, and then as we get on to Wednesday, um, we are looking at just a, a couple of light showers over the far southwest. And that's a similar story for Thursday. And by the time we get to Friday, um, we have a, a trough developing down the west coast and, and we have uh, conditions warming up and basically dry throughout the southwest land division. And that should remain the case for many days, Blender. And what about for northern and eastern parts of the state then, Joey? Yeah, so it is uh, getting a little bit more interesting over the north of the state. Uh, Firstly, we're going to have this high-pressure ridge uh, move across the south of the state, which is going to drive some fresh and gusty winds through the northern parts of the state. Um, So Wednesday and Thursday, especially through the morning, those winds are going to be quite fresh and gusty through the interior and Pilbara and southern parts of the Kimberley. And then we start seeing a summer-type pattern with thunderstorms developing through the northern Kimberley. So um, that we're expecting to start on Wednesday and sort of extend over the northern parts of the Kimberley on Thursday and even throughout a whole lot of the Kimberley on Friday. So um, so with that, it's just those afternoon showers and, and storms building up and, uh, you know, they won't last long. Um, so that'll just be through the afternoon and evening period. But, yeah, typical of quite a, a summer tropic type of weather pattern, Belinda. And then the warnings this afternoon? Oh, we've just got um, a, a raft of strong wind warnings. So uh, we've got a strong wind warning on the West Pilbara coast and then strong wind warnings along the Lancelin, Perth, Bunbury and Lewin Coast and for where we've got this um, intense shower activity on the south coast we have a gale warning so that's for the Esperance and Albany Coast and then a strong wind warning for the Eucla Coast um, Belinda. Okay thank you so much for the details Joe. appreciate that. This is the Country Hour and it's 26 to 1 taking a look now at the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, and from 9am on Friday right through till 9am this morning, no rainfall at all anywhere in the northern and eastern forecast districts. But in the southwest land division forecast districts, most places seem to get some. In the central west, most locations had between one and four mils, but above that it was only New Norcia with five. Then in the lower west, everywhere seemed to get some, so we'll start at 10 and above. Araluan 14, Bickley 15, Bungendore had the same, Chidlow 12, Dwelling up 21, Gidjigan up 13, Glen Eagle 18, Huntley 25, Jarradale 19 to 20, Carrigullen North 17, Lake Chittering 11, Millenden 12, Mount Solis 21, Mundaring 14, Kinjara had 9 to 12 mils, Rollystone 20, Serpentine 14, and Whiteman Park had 12. In the southwest, also at 10 and above, Acton Park 11, Bailing up 7, Beetle up 24, Boyne up north 13, Bridgetown 11, Brunswick Junction 19, Bunbury 11. Capel had between 6 and 12, Carlotta 11, Kawaram up 13, Darden up had 11 to 12 mils, although at the Deepherd station just round the corner they had 0.4 of a mil. And then uh, Ferguson Valley had 11 to 15 mils, Four Acres 19, Harvey and Hintybrook both recorded 12, Jarrowwood 11, Jindong 13, Carrydale 12, Logebrook 16, Manjum up 14 to 15, Margaret River 11, 
Millianna, 22, Mount William, 21, Nanup had 13 to 15 across a number of locations, Newbicup, 10, Newlands, 18, Northcliffe, 17, Pemberton, 24, Perryvale Orchard, 11, Quinnan up, 19, Ravenscliff Alert Station, 10, Rosabrook, 15, Scott River, 12, Shannon, 18, Somme Creek, 9, Thompsonbrook, 13, Walpole Forestry, 21, and Warner Glen had the same. Willie Abrup, 11, Windy Harbour, 20, and Yanmar, 14. In the southern coastal region, we'll go back to five and above, and Albany had 11 to 15, Bremer Bay, 5, Chillinup also had 5, Denmark, 10, Gardner, 5, Mount Barker, 6, and Tamar, 12. And then in the central wheat belt, a lot of places had 1 to 4 mils, the only ones that were above that was Mount Noddy with six. And then in the Great Southern region, Badgerbup seven, Boddington North six, Wilgarra five, and Williams had between five and six mills. Now, there are a few harvest bands in place, to, uh, sorry, not harvest bands, total fire bands in place today. So in two shires in the Goldfields Midlands region, so Laverton and Menzies have got a total fire ban in place. So no lighting of fires in the open air and no carrying out any activity that could start a fire. And that includes open fires for cooking and camping, etc. No hot work, metalwork, grinding, welding, etc. And no off-road activity using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorbike, bobcat, all those sorts of things. And if you want more information on what can and can't be carried out during a total fire ban, just go to the DFES website. So D-F-E-S and look up total fire bans. And uh, current total fire bans that are in place there on the Emergency WA website. Also on there, there's an update on some fires that are burning in WA at the moment. Some are at a bushfire advice level. So in the Shire of Derby, West Kimberley, um, in the northeastern parts of Willare, there's a fire burning at the moment that's at an advice level. There's also one in the Shire of Ashburton that's in the northeastern parts of Mount Sheila. And there's one in the city of Albany that's still going. That's in parts of Calgan and Napier. So that's at an advice level. The one in the city of Albany that was in the northeastern parts of Palmdale, though, that's actually been given the all clear, which is good news. Thanks, Richard. 22 to 1 earlier in the hour, you heard from, well, about an independent policy institute that wants $100 billion of government money to be invested into developing green manufacturing in Australia including green refined iron production. In response to this, Cathy Dawson from Southern Forest Community Landcare says, interesting story on green energy and processing of raw commodities onshore. Since our program is unfunded, we have restricted the topic to agricultural application of biochar and energy. We would have liked to be more expansive, covering biochar incorporation in steel, concrete and asphalt strengthening products and providing a pathway to reduce carbon footprint. Enormous potential for circular economies in the southwest, but a Landcraig group lacks the resources to run the promotion necessary to reach potential partner networks. We are hopeful that presentations from a range of regional areas will stimulate interest and support. Thank you for that, Cathy. The text is 0448 and it's 20 minutes to one. Well, there's no denying mining is still a male-dominated industry, but recent statistics show the number of women in Western Australia's mining industry has increased by about 5% since 2017. Lillian Joyce is a grinder operator at Pilbara Minerals 
Pilgangora lithium mine, and she was at a recent Women in Pilbara networking event, which was held on site. I'm a I'm in the production team, so I'm on the graders at the moment. Um, graders, dump trucks, water carts, and hopefully, you know, all the other machines later on, loaders, diggers. And are there many women doing those sort of roles? It's slowly, like we're slowly building our numbers, which is really, really exciting. Um, we're actually getting some really, really skilled women on the crew, digger ops, you know, previous um, experiences, dozers, loaders, which is really exciting, um, especially for women, um, young women as well, wanting, you know, training opportunities. And when did you first get into mining? It was during COVID. I sort of like feel like I had the same start as a lot of people. I lost my job previous, like that I was sort of doing in Perth and needed another job and started for six months just to pay off bills. And um, I feel like it's like with a lot of people, just really, really enjoyed what I was doing and stayed for you know, another two and a half years pretty much. Why are events like this important for women on a mine site? Especially in production mining, there's not a lot of female representation, so it's really good to be able to network with other women to see that you know there are roles available and there are you know there's solidarity out there with other women who are sort of experiencing the same kind of things as you. It's good to just have a support network. There can be a lot of doubt sometimes that the women can't perform the job as you know as well as or you know to the same ability as men can. But it's an ever-changing industry, and you know accommodations can be made. And I think sometimes women you know, approach different sort of problems, different tasks, right, in a, you know, a fresh perspective and can sometimes handle it a lot better. I mean, it's not all about, you know, getting the job done the same way. Sometimes you need to just sort of take your time and, you know, approach it a different way. I've made some really, really good friends here. So in all of the different parts of mining, one of my um, good friends, Beck, she's in the health and safety department. Um, I'm going to do sort of further training um, to do sort of one day maybe go down that kind of avenue um, again, talking to one of the girls in like the processing plant, she's a processing manager. It's really good to see that you know there are women in leadership roles in this company, and you know within mining, it sort of shows that those kind of roles are still really achievable, and they are out there. And, you know, it gives people, yeah, girls goals to work towards. Lillian Joyce, grinder operator with the processing team at Pilbara Minerals, Pilgangora Mine. Layla Knoll is the Health and Safety Manager for the Chamber of Mining and Energy. She says there are lots of reasons why more women are working in the mining industry in all sorts of roles. So it's interesting. I think we're seeing an, a consistent positive trend upward in terms of the women that we have in the sector. So for the last, I want to say, 10 years, CME have been releasing a biannual diversity and inclusion report. And of that, we released the statistics of gender diversity in our sector. And in 2017, we had about 18% of uh, women represented in the sector. And in our 2021 report, that is at 21.5%. So that's a positive sign seeing that increase. If you, if you read the report, we actually break it down by roles. And you can see that earlier on in this journey, we did have uh, women more in those administrative roles, whereas now we're seeing a huge diversification of the roles that women are um, playing in this sector, which is positive to see as someone who has worked and does continue to work in the resources sector. Uh, as someone who was previously FIFO and oil and gas, it's been a huge change. I know previously there have been a lot of people who have assumed that to work in mining, you need to have an engineering degree or a geology degree. It's so much broader than that. There's opportunities to be working in the field. There's opportunities to be working in nine to five in an office. And it's fantastic to see that broadening. 
There are flexible work arrangements. There's uh, family-friendly arrangements. Uh, we've seen some companies, they organize family days so that their partners and their children can see what they're doing every day on site. And it's really great to see that community of the sector grow. And as it grows, it becomes more diverse. You did say you have seen a change from 2017 then to 2021. Yes. Why do you think there was a change? I don't really want to put it to one thing because there are so many different areas. There's been increased awareness of the roles that are in that sector, in our sector. There's been increased engagement for both genders into STEM, into trades roles, uh, which has provided access into our industry. I don't think we can say there's one particular area that's increased diversity. It takes a bunch of different initiatives and, and a variety of different approaches in order to address this issue. Layla Knoll is the Manager for Health, Safety and People at the Chamber of Minerals and Energy. She was speaking to Jane Murphy about why there's been a gradual increase in the number of women working in the mining industry just in recent years. Quarter to one. Meanwhile, in the ag sector, a new Ladies in Livestock group has just started in the northeast of Victoria, giving novice farmers a chance to learn hands-on skills. The course is targeting women with little to no farming experience and covers everything from marking calves, fixing fences, soil testing, and even how to buy and sell at the sale yards. Rural reporter Annie Brown went along for lesson one. Lamb marking. Just watch they don't kick in. Good little kickers. Put it on first. On a farm in Warrambane, just outside of Benalla, a group of nine women are marking lambs for the first time. Who wants to do a tag? It's part of a new group in the northeast of Victoria called Ladies in Livestock. It's run by cattle farmer Jackie Lachlan. Used to be a farm consultant and I now have stud Murray Grey cattle, which I love. (laughs) And for a long time, 10 years ago, I had this idea of, in talking to younger girls, they wanted the practical skills. If they bought land, they could actually feel confident in going and buying sheep handling lambs or calves, fixing a fence. And it's taken a long time to come to fruition, but then I thought, well, bite the bullet and do it. And the idea was for women to come out in an environment that wasn't under pressure, um, which sometimes it is with men. They get, they're in a hurry to do things and, and often they lose their cool with their wives and their girlfriends. <laughs> this was to provide an environment where they could relax and learn. You said this is something that you've wanted to do for a long time. Mm. Where did you first get the idea from this? So what was this inspired from? Just talking at conferences with young girls and older girls. One of the older ladies, she wanted to keep her farm. And because she'd been the housewife, the housekeeper, the children's you know, raiser... She didn't know how the farm worked and her husband died and the children talked her into selling the farm because she didn't know about it. And she said, I wish I'd met you years ago because I would have then learned how to run the farm. I could stay there. And she wanted to stay there, but in the end sold it. 
How did you get into farming, Jackie? Family dairy farm. When I was young and I loved it, I spent every weekend down on the farm. I worked for years and years and years with other vocations and at 40... I went back to farming and I thought I should have done this when I was 20. (laughs) And I can't get enough of it. I guess, what are your hopes for what this group could grow into? Well, I do hope at the end of it they're all confident enough to go and purchase animals and run their property, whether it's 400 acres or 4 acres, and be confident in doing it and feel that they're doing it the right way. Cheryl and her husband retired to Ruffy to take up farming. They've started with just a small herd of belted Galloway. This is the first time she's ever been near a sheep. My husband is very much a perfectionist and no farming background. So I found I was really relying on his expertise. Although I was doing lots of reading, I wasn't hands-on. And we're in our 60s and I want to be able to really participate equally in the farm. And this was just a beautiful opportunity to learn with other women in a safe environment to get my confidence up and just live the life I want to live as an active person on the land as I get older. So you said you're new to farming. What were you doing before? So I was a nurse, midwife before, before this, so um, maternal and child health nurse. No family history of farming whatsoever, but lots of bushwalking and camping and time in the country. Had this very idyllic view of how life would be. Reality is a nice place to visit, but I'm now living in it. So, What's been the highlight of your day? Actually, practically doing this, I've never handled a sheep before, and we've laughed a lot. So, you know, we've all fumbled our way through. As you saw, I couldn't tell a girl from a <laughs> boy, so I've got that covered now. So, no, just really doing it and learning. Yeah, it's been great. Janine Clayton, and we've got 300-odd acres in a place called Moglanimbi, just north of Euroa. We run Black Angus, and I've just started breeding. So this will be our third year breeding. Uh, it's been a new experience because we weren't farmers. So over the last seven years, we've developed lots of new skills. How are you going working with sheep? This is a new experience for you? They're silly animals. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're smaller and easier to handle. They are a little bit erratic, but um, yeah, different. I didn't really know what to expect. What's it like being in a, a group of just women learning these skills? It's really good. I think uh, women empower women and it's a softer approach than having men tell you this is how it's done. Not bagging out the men, but I think women tend to talk and gleam off each other uh, better than just having a full-on instruction from a guy who's perhaps been doing it for years. So the one thing in particular you're hoping to learn from this group? I want to become confident in doing things um, to help out on the farm instead of just doing all the book work. I, want, I already work in the yards, but just having that confidence in knowing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and handling things like you know, the tag guns and vaccines. What advice would you give other new farmers? Find a group. Find a group of like-minded people. Do any courses that come up that um, appeal to your interests. Thank you for Jackie putting this on and Mark for having us all here, us novices working as sheep. Janine Clayton from Moglanimbi speaking to Rural Reporter Annie Brown. Eight minutes to one and shortly just before the news at one, it's off to Mouche checking the yarding and the prices at today's cattle market. 
First up, though, have you ever ridden a bull? And if you have, imagine doing it as an eight-year-old. That's what Cash Kestel did, although he is now an experienced 14-year-old rider and he's one of a number of Western Australians to be selected for the World Miniature Bull Riding Championships taking place in the US this week. I'm, I'm a bit nervous but really excited as well at the same time because it'll be a great experience. So can you tell me exactly what is mini bull riding? It's like bull riding, like, but they're just like smaller bulls and that. But like you have your rope and then you put your hand in that and then, yeah. How exactly did you get into the sport? Um, well, mum and dad did it. So then, I don't know, I just kind of followed in their footsteps. So. And when did you start? Well, I started when I was eight and then I had a bit of a break and then I got back into it again like early this year. So, What was it like when you were eight years old and first starting bull riding? Oh, I was like really scary when I was younger and that. But then I just like thought, oh, I'll just give it a crack again because like when I was younger, like I couldn't really like focus properly and that and I'd just get too scared. But yeah. How do you feel now when you're up there riding that bull? Um, well, I'm still scared, but it's like can like control, like you just kind of know what you have to do. What's it like to be selected to represent the country? Oh, it's like a real honour. Like, it's real cool. Like, I feel real special. How do you think you'll fare against those other countries? I'm not really sure yet, but, like, I'll just go out there, do what I normally do, and hope for the best. How often are you on the bull each week? Well, because we've had rodeos for each week for about six weeks, and most of the time you get on one, but then there's I've had a few where there'll be, like, a junior rodeo and a rodeo together. So then I'll be able to get on two. And I believe that you're going, one of your friends has also been selected for the stage. Yeah, yeah, my best mate, Kobe McCarthy, yeah. Oh, it'll be like real cool because we've been like best mates forever and it's just going to be like a real adventure heading over there with him. Have you been overseas before? No, no, this will be my first time. How do you think you're going to feel that moment when you are in the States, you're competing. Are you anticipating anything or are you just going to ride it out? I'll just ride it out. The first one will probably be like my most nervous one, but then once I get the first ride out of the way, then all the other ones will be all right. 14-year-old Cash Kestel from Wooraloo, about 60 kilometres northeast of Perth. He's going to be representing Australia this week at the World Miniature Bull Riding Championships and he was speaking to Sophie Johnson, and those championships being held in Mesquite, Texas. Five minutes to one. Container shipping costs have fallen dramatically in the past year, making it cheaper for exporters to move their goods. During COVID, up to 12% of the world's container fleet was stuck in ports, waiting to be unloaded, driving costs to unprecedented levels. But Shipping Australia's Jim Wilson says things are changing. Here in Australia, we've seen a massive decline in the volume of containers coming into the country and also leaving the country. The actual cost of operating a vessel has also declined, although the fuel prices are volatile, currently about $670, roughly US dollars for a tonne of low sulphur fuel. What would Um, that be compared to, say, 12 months ago or two years ago? 
height of the COVID crisis, the cost of operating vessels was enormous. I do recall some shipping routes, like the transatlantic trans-Pacific, you were talking about you know, $20,000 plus for a 40-foot box. So that's a shipping container that's 40 foot long. That price is down to about $1,500. Now, on the southbound route from Northeast Asia, East Asia, down to Australia, we were hearing, you know, crazy low rates, uh, crazy low rates, $150 a box or less, whereas previously it, w- it was much more expensive than that. Because volumes are down, because freight rates are down, um, even though costs have fallen, we're starting to see some of the smaller players pull out of the Australian market, which is going to mean less shipping for Australian exporters. So if you're an Australian exporter, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. If you know you're going to be having a large volume of exports, book your container early. Are there other factors influencing the cost of getting containers in or out of the country? Well, there are always a wide range of factors, the cost of ports, inflation. One particular issue that's very important, if your primary export port is Port Botany, the operators of the port, NSW ports, have mandated that for every box that comes into the country, one must leave. Now, they've done that really to avoid um, a buildup of, of containers in the country, and empty containers. The issue there is they are finding the shipping companies if they don't maintain what's called a low discharge ratio, one box in, one box out. Now, the consequences for the ocean shipping companies are if they don't get their boxes out, they get fined large amounts of money. So they have a strong incentive to get boxes out. The problem for that is if you are exporting through the port botany hinterland, you need those empty containers. It's a possibility that depending on what happens in the freight markets, we could end up with a supply chain squeeze for empty containers. I'm not saying it is going to happen, but I'm saying it's a possibility. Do you expect that that policy would be taken up by other ports around the country? No, we, we don't think so. That policy has been in place for a while now, and none of the other ports, as, as far as I'm aware, have discussed it or mentioned it or, or raised it. Jim Wilson from Industry Body Shipping Australia with Karen Hunt. Two minutes to one. Well, almost 1,500 head of cattle sold at the Mouchet sale yards this morning, so numbers up a little bit on last week. Terry Birkin's been at the sale. Hello, Terry. Hi, Melinda. Numbers have increased by close to 600 over the long weekend with a high percentage of pastoral cattle on offer and local cattle in shorter supply. Young cattle were selling at rates similar to recent weeks with shipping bulls lifting slightly, but mature cattle with weight eased a further 10 to 15 cents a kilo with the usual buying field in attendance. Local villa steers made from 270 to 322 cents, while the heifer sold up to 272 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers returned 230 to 280 cents, and local heifers were selling from 210 to 230 cents a kilo. Pastoral veal and yearling steers started at 90 cents, up to 234 cents, and plainer heifers with multi-colouring and showing horn started from 40 cents, up to 214 cents for straight red pole heifers with better cover. The very few grown steers available sold for 180 cents, while grown heifers averaged 140 cents a kilo. Cows eased with lightweight cows making 50 cents to 128 cents, medium cows selling up to 146 cents, while heavy cows realised 168 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls gained 5 to 10 cents, returning up to 266 cents, while heavy bulls eased 15 cents a kilo, selling from 130 to 192 cents a kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mushay. Thank you very much for that, Terry. In response to the red seaweed story that's going to feature on Australian Story tonight, Jack says, how will we get the seaweed to the millions of wildebeest and zebra in Africa, the moose and caribou in Canada and the reindeer? 
in Europe. Thank you for that, Jack. On the ABC, time for the latest news. It's now one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.